If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. And I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now if you'll turn me to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, for our New Testament reading. Here we are given a peek behind the curtain. Inside into that last day when the Lord will bring and usher into glory all of His people. And we will see all the wondrous things that He has prepared for those who love Him. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1-8 to Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. God Himself more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this. Down for these words, they are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And now if you'll turn with me for our, uh, our sermon text to the book of Exodus chapter 21. I'm going to take a brief one-week reprieve from Matthew chapter 5, 
for reasons I think will, I hope will become clear uh, in the following moments. Exodus chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. This is God's Word. This is the law of Moses given to the people of God. If you recall, the Ten Commandments were given just one chapter prior in Exodus chapter 20, and now Moses begins to explain the character of that law and apply it to specific situations. And here, Moses begins to apply the principles of the Sixth Commandment to a particular case. Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. This is God's Word. It might be difficult to hear. It might be difficult to understand. But with due diligence, as we compare this text with the rest of Scripture, we will find an essential clarity that God's Word leads us through this earthly wilderness as He directs our steps in the path of righteousness, even here in 2022 in Corvallis, Oregon. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray as we give attention to this portion of Your Word, a a portion that perhaps we may not have given much thought to, uh, that as it is fully inspired and authoritative, You would guide us and lead us, O Lord, in Your righteousness, that we might speak the truth in love and believe and do all those things You have commanded us to believe and to do for the sake of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it was a little over a week ago. It was, in fact, on uh, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. I was leaving here at the office. I was driving down uh, Highland Avenue, and I had uh, the radio on. I was actually listening to uh, the NPR forum for the day. I uh, don't typically uh, agree with uh, a lot of the stuff that, that comes from there, but I really enjoy listening to kind of the programming from time to time on here. And of course, as many of y'all are well aware, by this point in time, uh, rumors had leaked that that, that um, uh, Supreme Court decision uh, had uh, leaked with rumors that they were planning to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so now, of course, two or three days after the alleged leak, several pundits and politicians had begun uh, weighing in on their opinion on the matter. You know, uh, from uh, the, the highest uh, uh, people in office down to you know, even local uh, office holders of our civil authorities, we hear everyone having an opinion. Uh, Even our president made a rather striking assertion uh, the other week that no mainstream religion knows when life begins. NPR, of course, in the midst of all this, uh, invited some scholars to discuss those particular remarks to assess what religion actually had to say about the the nature of abortion. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Uh, I, I wonder who they are going to have on the air. 
And there was a scholar, of course, I was, uh, you know, I came in halfway through the program, so I didn't catch the particular scholar's name, but he was a religious scholar, and he, he, he made what I thought was a really poignant statement that at first got me really excited. He says, look, he says, if you look throughout all the religions in the world, he says, there's only one ancient religious text that directly addresses the matter of abortion. He says, it is found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. And I went, oh, this is interesting. But then he began to spend the next several minutes contending that this passage is actually ambiguous. And if anything, it, should, it leads to what he called you know, the, the pro-choice position. I didn't catch the exact wording because I was too busy uh, trying not to drive off the side of the road. And I'm not trying to make any type of political statement here. That's one of the things that we're going to have to ask. Is this a political issue? Where there can be room for agreement and disagreement, right? The Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not fully aligned with the Republican Party, nor is it fully aligned with the Democratic Party. It is a different institution. There is a spiritual character here. We are bound by a common faith and a common, not political allegiance, but by a common faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. But the question we have before us is what about this particular issue? Is it a political issue where we can agree to disagree? Or is it a moral issue where the church under the authority of the living God has no right to dissent from the view of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question we have before us. And given the fact that our civil magistrates who, as we all know, we, have to, we, we, we continue to try to honor them the best that we can. So I'm not saying these things to try to dishonor those in rightful authority over us, but they have dipped their toes in the water by claiming that there are certain things that the Bible says. It is our duty to assess those things in light of Scripture. Because our consciences are not bound to the President of the United States. Our consciences are not bound to the Governor of Oregon. Our consciences are not bound to the passing moral fads of social media and the news outlets. Our consciences are bound to one thing and one thing alone, and that is the Word of God. So we simply need to consider what does God's Word tell us, and regardless of the circumstances, obey. And so that's why I think uh, I, I, given the kind of the cultural and political, the social moment of where we are, I thought it would be good for us to take a week and consider what God's Word says about a very volatile issue in our community. So I want to do something that's very simple. I simply want to walk through this text. As Exodus 21 is the passage under discussion in the world around us, for those who even at, at least want to tip the hat and claim that they're giving consideration to God's Word, we want to assess their evaluation and their description of what the Bible says. And we want to consider what the Bible teaches as it illuminates to us what the Bible says about life before birth. So I think there are five particular things that I'd like us to consider. But first, I'd, I'd like to put before you uh, a, a particular scenario. I want you to imagine that you uh, are taking your wife out uh, for an anniversary dinner. 
<coughs> it's Friday night, and you want to take her to downtown Corvallis for a pleasant evening, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, I don't know, you, you take her somewhere fancy. All I can think of is, is, you know, McDonald's or Jimmy John's. But you want to take her somewhere fancy like McMinimins, you know, because this is your anniversary, and you're having a good time. Uh, and, of course, it's late at night, and, and you walk out, uh, and as you're walking to your car, you get accosted by uh, uh, perhaps a, a drug addict or a homeless person or a drunkard on the street uh, asking for money, and he becomes, becomes belligerent, begins to demand it, and then he pulls a knife, and he gets very violent. I mean, these are stories that we read of, that you read about in Portland all the time. But then you, of course, as the husband seek to protect your wife, and the two of you begin to fight. And as he lifts up his knife, and it looks like he has the upper hand, and just kind of a moment of, kind of maternal defense, as it were, the, the, the wife, she interposes herself between the two of you to try to, to protect her husband, even as her husband's been trying to protect her. And in the midst of it, the knife comes down, and she, she gets stabbed in the shoulder. She's rushed to the hospital, and uh, the, the wounds are uh, not... Uh, life-threatening for her, but in all the stress and the trauma, by the way, your wife is with a child. The uh, attacker did not know it. Perhaps she was only three or four months, and so it had not begun uh, to show quite yet. Perhaps she was wearing a coat. Uh, but the trauma forces her to deliver prematurely, and the child dies. Legally speaking, what is to happen what does justice look like in this particular situation? And though the particulars of uh, the case we see before us in Exodus 21 might be unique to the nation of Israel, it does provide us with certain what the, our confession of faith calls uh, principles of general equity that teaches us what righteousness and justice truly looks like. How is this case to be handled under a righteous law? Again, I'd like us to consider five things as we simply walk our way through the text. First thing, I want us to note the circumstances here as we look and return here to Exodus chapter 21. Uh, this is uh, the scenario that is before us. Two men have gotten into a fight, and in the midst of it, uh, the, the pregnant woman has gotten hit. It's unintentional, but it has caused the child to die. Notice the circumstance here. The death is not intentional. This is something that under uh, kind, uh, modern criminal law in, in the United States, we would call something uh, like manslaughter, maybe second or third degree uh, murder. It is unintentional. Right? This is not addressing those difficult matters, you know, those hypothetical situations that you always hear that people want to put before you where uh, the doctor is having to choose between the life of the child or the mother because there's this kind of moment of medical triage. No, we're talking here about a case of, uh, of manslaughter. A case of domestic violence, as it were. A second thing to note here is that in the midst of this, you need to consider how the father would feel and the mother would feel in the midst of this. In the midst of this fight, the, the mother loses the life of her child you can imagine uh, as the, the husband and the father as like, the protector of the family what he would want to do to that man. Um, painful, painful things. You think of Liam Neeson in Taken. I have a, uh, a series, you know, I, I have all these, uh, what's the word he uses? 
Anyways, I have a, I have a certain set of skills <laughs> that I will uh, use for your death <laughs> to be long and painful because of what you have done to my family. And yet we see here, the, no, the law here makes no provision for vigilante justice. There's no call for a personal vendetta. We do see that phrase, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but it's not to be understood in the sense of personal vendetta. Jesus actually addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But the G- Jesus has to correct people saying, you've misunderstood what that principle is about. There is no call for a, uh, a, a personal vendetta to be allowed here. Rather, there is a call that the, there is a judiciary that must arbitrate justly. You see that here. The judges are the ones who are to decide the fate of what happens. It reminds us that God has, in fact, appointed the civil magistrate to be God's servant, to be God's minister for good, to uphold righteousness, to bear the sword as the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It is the place of the government to avenge wrongs. It's not the place of Batman to avenge wrongs. Third thing to note here, though, that the judges are to act in accordance with these principles of justice and act in tandem with and for the benefit of the victim's family. Right? Under Israel's legal system, the father did have a say in the matter. He was not the one who had the power to take the sword to his own hands to, to, uh, to, um, uh, uh, to administer you know, personal justice against those who had wronged him. He doesn't have the final say in what is to happen to the offender. But his opinion does matter. You see, you know, if, if the, the mother ends up uh, uh, giving birth prematurely and there is no harm that comes to mother or child, the father has a right to impose a certain fine upon the perpetrator. And yet at the same time, the judges had that right to require um, uh, the, the perpetrator to pay that fine as they require. In other words, they kind of have the right to, to ensure that uh, the father is not demanding too much. You know, you, you imagine a situation where uh, you, you're driving downtown, you go to New Morning Bakery in downtown Corvallis, you, you park uh, on the side of the street, and then somebody dings your car driving by. Like, ah, oh, you, you ding my car. I demand justice. Give me a million dollars. Well, that doesn't, <laughs> yeah, that, that, you know, that's not right. <laughs> My car is not worth a million dollars. It's the job of the judges to, to, to oversee and to make sure the fine that the father is imposing is one that accords with justice. So the father does have a say in the matter, but he does not have the final say. It is still done in accordance with the civil authorities. Does, does that make sense here? That, that, that God has actually given the civil magistrate in place uh, a particular purpose in upholding justice. Now, in ancient Israel uh, is what we call an, an old theocracy where the church and the state uh, were blended together. That's not the case here. It was something that was unique to Israel. It's, um, uh, that's been done away with. And so now it is not the church that has the power of the sword. It is the civil government that has been given the power of the sword. It is not the family that is given the power of the sword in this matter. Uh, though the father did have the right to defend the family, because the fight breaks out, yet he does not have the right to execute personal justice. Well, the fourth thing we note here is what is that principle of justice by which the judges are required to act? 
What is that principle that is properly known as uh, the principle of lex talionis? Uh, the law of retribution or the law of retaliation. It's known more commonly as seen here in the phrase in verse 24, that of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I think there are three important things to keep in mind when we think about that principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Because we're so often, I think, used to from like the old Charles Bronson movies and like these vigilante movies to think eye for an eye, tooth for truth, and to, and to couch it in the language of, again, vigilante justice. But no, this is a principle by which the civil authorities were called to abide by. And the first thing to notice here is that this is a principle that addresses various levels of transgression. You give a black eye, you get a black eye. You knock out a tooth, you get your tooth knocked out. It's not you give a black eye and you get your arm chopped off. There is a certain uh, principle in place here that as it addresses various levels of infractions and transgressions, it is also a principle that highlights the seriousness of the crime and reminds the people of the land, you will reap what you sow. What you do shall be done to you. It is in fact a principle that undergirds Jesus' own statement that we should do only to others those things that we would want done to ourselves. Jesus is taking that principle in its proper light and says if there is that, that principle of retribution, then perhaps this should teach you to love your neighbor as yourself rather than using that uh, like, uh, like, like in the, the Merchant of Venice where you try to get your pound of flesh. And yet also what should be seen here is that this is a principle of justice that protects and gives justice to the victim, but also protects, in one sense, the transgressor. The transgressor ends up giving somebody a black eye, and he's called before the judge. The judge does not say, all right, well now your hand's going to get lopped off in return. No, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. There is a, an equitable principle of justice that defends and protects the integrity, not just of the victim, but also of the transgressor. Without, without downplaying the seriousness of the crime, because if the transgressor has killed somebody, he should know the very thing he deserves is death, as the law demands eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and life for life. In other words, here is a law that uh, gives protection, again, both to victim and transgressor, it, uh, and it, it, it protects the transgressor from what we might call those laws of cruel and unusual punishment. You see how this principle has even undergirded and, and, and given shape to the American legal system in so many ways. This is good. This is a good thing. But the question we have before us, and this leads us to the, the fifth thing to note, and this is, I think, the, the more difficult issue in some ways. I shouldn't say difficult. It's the lengthier issue that we have to deal with. Who is it that's protected under this law? Is it the mother that's being protected here in Exodus 21? Is it the child? Or is it both? Is it the grown adult that's being protected under this law? Or does this protection include the life of the unborn as well? You know, I gave an illustration a few moments ago uh, as if you know, um, uh, in, in the midst of a fight... Uh, the child dies. But here the text is actually, it gives a, a very difficult 
text case, as it were, where the situation is actually left ambiguous as to who is harmed. You look here at verse 23. Note, it does not specify who is actually harmed in the midst of this brawl that transpires. Simply, it says, if harm comes, if there is harm. It doesn't identify who it is that's being harmed. Is it the mother who's being harmed? Or is it the child who's being harmed? And this is what I heard on the radio earlier this past week as they tried to exploit this particular issue. Is they said, well, the identity of who is harmed is ambiguous, so we cannot be certain. Therefore, it should be left to the individual decision of the family to decide. And, and, and then they go on the, the laundry, uh, you know, the, the standard kind of echo chamber of that particular um, political viewpoint. But I don't think we can read this passage in isolation from the rest of Scriptures. We have to consider who is being brought into view here. Who is the victim here that is being afforded these privileges of life for life, of defense under the law? I want you to think of what the Psalms say when they speak of the life of the unborn. David says in Psalm chapter 29, he says that even from my mother's womb, you have been my God. God is, in fact, the God of the unborn. Genesis chapter 49, Joseph speaks of the blessing of the womb with the implication being that to destroy the womb is to destroy the blessing of God. Similarly, uh, Paul speaks in Romans chapter 4 of Sarah's barren womb, describes it as a dead womb, implying this, that the child within the womb ought to be considered a living thing. Ruth speaks not of a clump of cells in the womb or of potential life in the womb, but that she speaks of sons in her womb. In Ruth chapter 1, Jeremiah speaks of killing one from within the womb. In other words, it is something that is constituted as murder. That's Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 17. When you read these other passages, we could go on and on and on. You think of Psalm 139 or Job 31, or particularly the servant songs in Isaiah, where it says over and over again that God Himself has formed the psalmist from the womb, intricately woven, knitted together in the hidden parts. And thus to destroy the unborn is to destroy one of God's wonderful works. Isn't it so interesting that Psalm 139, a psalm that is so beautiful, that speaks of God's love and care for the psalmist, even within the womb, ends with the psalmist saying, do I not hate those who hate you? Those men of blood, Lord, bring justice against the violent and bloodthirsty man. You think of the way, you consider the way in which the unborn are considered in Scripture. You think of Jacob and Esau. Even within the womb, they're given distinct personalities, even strength of will. As the two children, the two sons, strive against one another even within the womb. Or you think of what David says in Psalm 71.6. He says, Upon you, O Lord, I have leaned on from before my birth. In other words, Scripture speaks of what it might describe as a fetal faith of a man who has trusted in God even before the day of his birth. We see that particularly in the case of John the Baptist as he's filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. He even leaps with joy within the womb at the hearing of the gospel. 
Perhaps we can ask this question. If the unborn are not truly human, what does that say about Christ as He dwelt in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Is that to say that Christ was not truly human at conception? If you say that, you've now crossed the boundaries into heresy. Because as Scripture confesses, Christ was truly human even from the moment of conception. Fully God and fully man. You see, there's a rich, having a rich Christology informs our grasp of human personhood as well. The benefits of, of a robust doctrine of Christ are boundless, that even in Christ's humiliation, even the day before the day He was born, it gives dignity to the person, and dignity to the defenseless, as the doctrine of Christ shines a light on the darkness of sin, as He was made like us in every way, even from the moment of conception, sin accepted. We could go on and on and on, but I'd like us to note this, that the Bible unabashedly speaks of the unborn as being a precious and wonderful work of God with dignity, with personality, with will, even at times having a receptive faith and responding with joy. In other words, Scripture attributes to the unborn those same qualities and attributes we find in grown adults. So when we return to this text and we ask ourselves, why does Moses not specify whether the, the mother or the child is the one to whom harm comes, the answer now becomes quite simple. It is because the, the point is this, that the same legal protection afforded to the mother is the same legal protection afforded to the child as well. So when Moses says, if harm comes, he has in view either situation. This is a general principle that is being set forth. The penalty of eye for eye, life for life, is not a legal protection afforded to the mother only, but also for her unborn son or daughter. And when we look at the rest of Scripture, there's no biblical ground or warrant to assert otherwise. And so if the unborn is killed in such a tragic accident as this, it is afforded the same retributive principle as if his adult mother had died. Life for life. Equal protection under the law. This is what justice and righteousness looks like. But I want you to notice one more thing. That if this law which demands the death penalty applies to unintentional deaths, which is what this scenario envisions, how much more ought this to apply to premeditated murder? You read passages like Leviticus chapter 20 where the Lord condemns not only Israel, but all the nations for committing willful child sacrifice as they offer their offspring to the pagan god Moloch. And in Leviticus chapter 20, I'd encourage you to read it even this afternoon, the first five verses. Here we find that the Lord not only condemns those who practice infanticide, but He also condemns those who turn a blind eye to its horrors, and He pronounces damnation upon those who approve of such actions, even if they themselves do not practice in those same things. Again, it's a law that's not simply declared upon 
the, the redeemed of Israel. It is an expression of God's moral law for the nations. And because the Gentiles have been practicing these things, you read the first five books of the Old Testament, Israel, as a theocracy, is given the power of the sword to ex- execute divine justice against the Gentiles for these very sins. Three main things the Gentiles, the Canaanites in particular, are uh, summoned to final judgment for. For idolatry, sexual immorality, and child sacrifice. In other words, if the Lord is condemning for all the nations, not just the practice of infanticide, of child sacrifice, with those legal protections that are afforded both the unborn and the born and the adult alike. But applies to all the nations. And there's a condemnation given not just to the practice of infanticide and abortion, but there's a condemnation given to those who approve of it and to those who turn a blind eye to it. Then as we consider what the Bible says in its totality... The Bible is not pro-choice. Contrary to what our president has said, the Bible is not ambiguous on the matter of abortion. You read the earliest texts of the New Testament, or not the New Testament, of the early church. You read the Epistle of Barnabas, or you read the Didache, at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. These little handbooks of Christian instruction give explicit prohibitions against abortion and infanticide. It's something the church recognizes right away. Contrary to what our governor has said, abortion is not a maternal right. Contrary to what several prominent evangelicals have said this week, this is not a matter where the church is free to agree or disagree. I'm saying this with great seriousness and also trepidation because I'm not a guy who wants to dip his toes in the political arena. But as we consider what Scripture says, we recognize this is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. And it is something that is binding upon all the nations. As it is a moral matter that stands in direct violation of the Sixth Commandment. It is a moral command that is binding upon all everyone, regardless regardless of one's religion or political affiliation. And so it leads us to the very difficult question then, doesn't doesn't it? What is the church to do? Of course, we are reminded of our duties that we have as citizens of earth. For those here who are citizens of the United States, that our Constitution affords us a voice in our state and nation's legal codes through voting, petition, protest, of the great privileges we have in promoting foster care and adoption through the ministry that uh, we, we are doing right now with the, uh, the Options Pregnancy Center of upholding and promoting life. As citizens of earth, we should make use of every lawful means afforded to us that righteousness might be established in the land. And that is a righteousness that includes protection of the unborn as being a just law that is given for all nations, not just for the redeemed. But we need to take this a step further because all I've said so far is something that you could say at the local school library to anybody. But what are we as a church called to do? As we are not only citizens of earth, 
but we are citizens of heaven. And this is what brings us back to the Beatitudes and the practical application of Jesus' own teaching. Who is it that are truly blessed? What are the citizens of heaven called to do on earth? Are we called to take up the power of the sword against the state? Are we called to incite a revolution? It's the very question that we asked last week. Who is it that will inherit the earth? Under the Old Covenant, Israel was granted the power of the sword to utterly devote to destruction the Canaanites for such practices. However, the church, unlike Israel, has not been delegated the power of the sword. We do not live in a theocracy. The New Testament does not approve of having a theocratic state. We do not have that particular power afforded to us. We cannot take that power to our own hands. Just like the Father here in this passage in Exodus cannot take uh, uh, matters into His own hands and act in terms of a vigilante justice. In other words, we do not have the authority or the right to blow up abortion clinics in retaliation as unjust as abortion is. That itself, too, is seen as a violation of of the moral law of God. That's why we see here, uh, in, as we confess in the, the, the shorter catechism, what are those things that are required in the sixth commandment? Did you notice that? Every lawful means that God has appointed to promote life. We cannot take matters into our own hands. Nevertheless, this is a moral issue that is common to all men. It's not merely a political issue. It's not something, uh, you know, I'm never going to be here to tell you who to vote for, who not to vote for. I'm not here to to give my political opinions on things. You don't want to hear my political opinions on things because they're half-baked at best. But what I hope that we see here this morning is this issue is not political. It's become politicized. But at its root, it's actually a moral issue. A moral issue that is common to all men. And we have been given a great commission. What, What did the Beatitudes tell us? What does the character of the Christian life look like? Blessed are those who mourn. We are called to mourn the estate of sin, not just in our own hearts, but in this nation as well. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ as He comes to Jerusalem, knowing what's about to transpire, and He breaks down into tears. He says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to have gathered you to Myself. As a hen gathers in her young from the coming fire but you wouldn't have it. There is a real grief over sin that characterizes the people of God. And so this particular issue should grieve the heart of the people of God. And as we are called to proclaim repentance, we cannot preach a message of repentance without preaching what sin is. And this is sin. Not just engaging in these murderous acts, but giving approval to them. As Paul says in Romans 1.32, we have to call sin as sin, including this sin. Again, not only those who do it, but those who say, oh, you must have the right to do it. Not my decision. No, we, we, we cannot even wink at this and say that this is okay. You look at the statistics. 60 million unborn in the U.S. alone, slaughtered over the past 50 years. Ten times the number of Jews killed in the Holocaust. Do you think 
God will continue winking His eye at this? Continuing to let this go undone, unreckoned with? As, as Abraham prays, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Hebrews 11 tells us that, that the murder of one man, the murder of Abel, as his blood was shed, and as the ground drank the blood, it says that Abel's blood cries out. Not simply that it cried out for vengeance, but to this very day, the blood of Abel cries out for justice. Now compound that by 60 million. Judgment is coming. And the church has been tasked with heralding the coming judgment. Whether that judgment is delayed until the last day, or if it falls on the nation before, I do not know. That is the Lord's prerogative in His own timing. There's no prophecy in Scriptures that says the United States has to remain standing before the Lord returns. But there is a reality that's the reason why the Canaanites were wiped out from the land. It's actually the reason, one of the reasons why Israel was exiled from the land for these protracted practices. And so the church must proclaim a doctrine, a message of repentance of this particular sin, as well as all these other laundry lists of sins that Scripture tells us, that shows how how far we have fallen. But we cannot stop even there. For though Abel's blood cries out from the ground daily for vengeance, Hebrews also tells us that there is the blood of one greater than Abel that cries out for mercy. One of whom Isaiah speaks that was formed and fashioned in the womb of a virgin and whom was found not even a whiff of sin. One who was truly human even from the womb. The beloved Son of God who came to bear the sins of His people. Who came even to bear sins like these. Who comes offering amnesty and pardon. Who comes bringing reconciliation and life to all who confess their sin and turn to Him. There is one who has satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God. Of a God who demands life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And just as God's justice demands life for life, so in the Gospel He has given life for life. By sending His beloved Son to die in the place of murderers. Murderers like you and me. The Bible attests to a loving God who sent His Son to give His life that the abortionist might be forgiven and washed clean of sin and shame. Perhaps you may have partaken in something like this. Perhaps you simply have approved in the past of one's right to it. Part of my task as a pastor is to tell you that now is the time to repent. Do not delay. But my task as a pastor does not stop there. To remind you that there is forgiveness for all who ask for it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. To cleanse us from the guilt and the shame of all our unrighteousness. And this here is the church's mission in this day and age. The proclamation not only of sin, but the proclamation of salvation in Christ. As it is our task to pray for our civil leaders, that they might turn from their folly, that they might know true wisdom. Not to pretend that they have the wisdom, 
And that's why I'm trying to be very careful in how I say these things today. Our president has said some very foolish things in the past week, but it does not give us the right to speak ill of him because of the office that he holds. Rather, it now becomes our duty to pray for him, to call him to repentance, to pray that the Lord would change his heart, to pray that the Lord would change the heart of our governor. And all the same time, if they do not change their heart, it is our right and privileges to pray them out of office and to do our civil duties to have put in office somebody who will uphold righteousness and justice in the land. Who is it that's going to inherit the earth? As we considered last week, and here's our connection to the rest of the Beatitudes, it is not the revolutionary who inherits the earth. It is the meek. As we entrust ourselves and our needs and our sorrows and our griefs to the judge of the, all the earth who does, in fact, judge righteously that we with that quiet and meek courage would stand up for the truth, that we with fervent devotion would pray that the Lord would grant wisdom to our civil leaders, that they might turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and learn to wield the sword to which, with which they have been entrusted, that they would wield it justly. That we might proclaim that mercy speaks by Jesus' blood. And the only refuge to be found from the coming wrath, which is surely coming, is to be found in finding solace and shelter in that rock and defense that is found through turning from our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, who freely welcomes all sinners to come and to find rest and safety in Him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we ask that Your Word would illuminate our hearts and direct our paths that we might speak uh, courageously, but that we might speak the truth not in anger, but in love, seeking to reason and convince those uh, who do not know the truth that they would come to a knowledge of the truth and love the God who is alone righteous. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.